an honor to be back here in New York. I just flew in from Portland. I was at another conference, and I'm here. And then uh, tomorrow I fly to Frankfurt for another conference. So I'm starting to pick up my travel. I haven't been traveling much because I became the senior pastor again of our church starting in January, which is quite a quite a journey, but it's been very, very good. How many of you have never heard me speak before, so I have a little idea of the crowd here? Okay, just a handful. That's good. So uh, it's good. Now, I, I don't have really a lot of time to get into my testimony, um, and but I was just here two weeks ago, and I was on the Eric McTaxas show. I don't know if you heard of Eric McTaxas, but but, you know, I was supposed to highlight my book, Modern Day Apostle, which came out earlier this year, but he just wanted my testimony and spent an hour and a half sharing my testimony. So if you want a full detail of my testimony, uh, you could go to just YouTube, uh, Eric McTaxis, Cheon, and, and get that. Anyways, great to be with Juliana and Sal and Billy, and I see a number of the staff people here. Uh, really, is uh, this is just, to me, and I'm biased, of course, I think this is a key apostolic center here in New York City. And I believe that God's raising you guys up to really bring revival and reformation of society. This is not just rhetoric. I'm not just saying this as hype. I really believe that with all my heart. I feel the presence of God's, uh, God is here. I feel his, uh, his grace, even though I only had a few hours to sleep because I got to bed 2.30 this morning just flying in, red eye special. But, uh, but I feel God's grace here. And so would you be kind enough, just stand with me, let's invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. <clears throat> the Bible says he will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance what he has taught us. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We love your presence. We can say with Moses in Exodus 33, unless your presence goes with us, we can't go any further. And Lord, of course, you're omnipresent, but he was talking about the manifest presence. And so we ask for your presence to manifest any way you want to. But specifically, Lord, I, I want to ask you to be our teacher, that we would not just receive information, but we would receive revelation that will lead to transformation of our lives, that we would be changed from glory to glory into your image. We want to be like you, Lord. And Lord, I, I think of Colossians 1.10, where Paul says, I want to walk in a manner worthy of you, to please you in all respect, to bear fruit in every good work, and to increase in the knowledge of you. We say that we want to know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> I've been uh, just so blessed. Um, you know, we just had our sixth grandchild this year. And uh, <clears throat> I know, it's hard to believe. I have four adult children. All of them are married. And uh, three of them are in full-time vocational ministry, and so uh, we're really, really proud of our children. But our, our latest was born uh, in February, February the 12th, and um, it was interesting because right after Kezia was born, I was in Boston at one of our churches. I lead a network of churches uh, around the world, and, um, and so I ran into some old friends, so they asked me, what was, uh, you know, what's your granddaughter's name? And all of a sudden... <coughs> At a senior moment, my mind went blank. I could not remember her name, the honest truth. Because it's an unusual name. Her name is Kezia, and that's one of the Job's daughter uh, in, in, in the book of Job. And so, and it was so humbling, so embarrassing. I said, you know what? I can't remember her name. It reminds me of a story of a couple that uh, were in Florida at a retirement center. And a widow and a widower. And, you know, at these retirement centers, I don't know if you 
have parents who are in retirement center, but my mother-in-law is in a retirement center. She's 95 years old and in a retirement center in San Diego. She's a retired pediatrician, and so uh, she's in a very nice retirement center. So they have these social events at these retirement centers. And uh, they have dances, dinners, they have entertainment, they bring in big bands, things like that, with, you know, age appropriate for them. And so uh, there was this big dance coming up, and so the widower decided to ask a widow for her hand in marriage, both in their 80s. And so they had dinner together, and they had dance together, and then at the right moment he asked her hand in marriage. But the next morning he could not remember if she said yes or no. <laughs> So he's just really, you know, so finally has to humble himself and call her in a room and just said, I had a wonderful time with you last night. And she said, I had a wonderful time with you last night. And he says, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm forgetting things. And I know I asked for your hand in marriage last night, but I don't remember if you said yes or no. And she said, I said yes. And I meant it with all my heart. And I'm so glad you called me because I forgot who asked me to marry him last <laughs> night. And so, <laughs> so. Now, I'm not making a negative confession. I believe I have the mind of Christ, and Christ Jesus made to me wisdom. But, you know, uh, things are happening, and especially when I'm tired. So please pray for me as I'm up here that God will give me grace to communicate what's on his heart to you. Because I want to talk about revival. I got saved during the Jesus People Movement, and historically, Jesus People Movement started in 1967 in Southern California, Costa Mesa, with Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee. You may have heard of some of these names. But um, I knew Lonnie personally before he passed away. Uh, he died of AIDS. He died of HIV. And, uh, but he was an incredible revivalist. And, uh, and Jesus People Movement went from 1967 to 1977, historically. Um, and so I got saved in 73. And uh, then, of course, in 1994, the Holy Spirit fell in Toronto and also in Los Angeles. And it was called the Toronto Blessing. How many have heard of the phrase Toronto Blessing, well, I thought I was born again again at that time and uh, experienced extraordinary power, uh, deep repentance, and uh, just transformation again. And I was not a pastor during that time. I was uh, unemployed uh, itinerant. <laughs> I was not a successful uh, speaker. I'm just trying to support my family. I had resigned as a pastor in 1992, so it was two years of itinerating uh, and not being successful at that. And then... <clears throat> Then the Holy Spirit fell in 94, and God spoke to me to start a new church, and that's how HROC started. Two years later, we started our uh, Apostolic Network, which was really a mission organization to plant churches among the unreached people groups. And so ever since then, it's just been a wild ride. I mean, we are now, HIM is in 70 nations in 22 years, and this is the Lord's doing, is marvelous in our sight. And really the key is jumping in the river of God and allowing the river to carry you. Uh, you know, Zechariah 4, 6 says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It, it numbers, uh, uh, I mean, Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so you could do it with your own strength, because all of you are ministers. How many ministers do we have here? Yeah. Every hand should go up. Because the Bible says you are kings and priests. Yeah. Revelation 1.6, it says that again in Revelation 5.10. I like the way Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a royal priesthood. Amen. Tell the person next to you you're one good-looking priest. Go ahead and do that, okay? <laughs> you are. You're beautiful. And you are called to ministry. I, I think we have to get away from this Greek mentality of dualism. 
you know, this Platonic thinking. Plato taught there were two worlds, you know, and uh, basically he talked about the philosophical world, which was really the thing to value, and then the natural world, which was decaying, was worthless. Christians embraced that, and in fact, went into heresy called docetic Gnosticism that Jesus didn't even come to the flesh because the flesh is evil, which is ridiculous, of course. And so, with uh, and so as a result of that dualism, we see sacred, secular, clergy, laity, you know, church, state. That's not biblical. God wants to give us the revelation that everything is sacred. Work. And the Hebrew means worship. How many know work is not a four-letter curse word? God worked six days before the fall and rested on the seventh. Work is his idea. He gave man to work in the garden before the fall. And so we have to understand work is part of who we are in worshiping God. And it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation when all of a sudden the Bible got translated in common German in 1517 with Martin Luther because prior to that time, the people did not read the Word of God. Only the priests did, and they read it in Latin, and most of the priests didn't even read the Word anyway. But once it got translated, all of a sudden the people wanted to, to read the Word, and all of a sudden they started to read scriptures like Colossians chapter 3, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for man. All of a sudden, because before, if you were a street cleaner, it was just, you know, you hated your job. You, you, you were the lowest of the low. And... Uh, and you know, it's just a means of paying your bills, right? Just get whatever little salary you got as a street cleaner. But all of a sudden, the Reformation takes place, and all of a sudden, this phrase, the Protestant work ethic, got restored during that time, and people began to do it as unto the Lord. And all of a sudden, it's no longer cleaning the street. It's worshiping God Amen. in the workplace. Amen. And when you do that, all of a sudden, you start getting promoted. All of a sudden, this entrepreneurship begins to take over, and all of a sudden, you begin to hire other street cleaners, and, and you're the boss, and all of a sudden, you see revenue streams come in. And so we see how the foundation, believe it or not, of capitalism took place during the Protestant Reformation. Because we see, even in the parable of Matthew 25, the parable of the talent, how he gave one person five talents, another two talents, one talent. The master did not give instruction how to do, what to do with the talent. He just gave it to the individual. By the way, a talent, one talent would be 10 times your salary equivalent. So whatever you make, Bill, you know, you make a million a year. We're talking about 10 million a year. Wow. That's what God gave you. <laughs> so five talents would be 50 times your salary. And so what we're talking about is just basically using this language as a metaphor to say he gave them millions to steward. And so God is saying, I've given you everything to steward. By the way, he's the owner. I think one of the biggest lies in the body of Christ is that it's my money. I could do whatever I want to do with it. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 21. And the world and those who dwell within us, even you, you're his. He's made you in his image and his likeness. Render to Caesar with that which is Caesar. Render to God which is God. Remain the image of God. Give to God your life. Anyway, but the, the, the parable of the talents was revolutionary. According to Os Guinness, he believes that that parable was the foundation of capitalism. Because think about it. He didn't micromanage. He didn't tell them what to do. They had to really take that and steward that well.
and they trade it. Today, I know in New York, currency trading is huge. It's a trillion dollar industry. I do that on a small scale because I'm going to Germany tomorrow and um, you know, I have to exchange dollars with euros. Sometimes I'll keep the euros. If I know, like when we went through the recession in 2008, I knew the dollar was going to devalue, so I kept the pounds and the euros when I received the honorarium when I went to London. So a small way of trading. And then, you know, when the dollar is strong with Brexit, the pound dropped. Well, I got rid of uh, the pounds and I traded it for dollars. And so we see in that parable there was trading going on. And one made five more talents. And the two made two more. Both got the same reward. Both of them, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant, entering into the joy of your master. And at the end of the day, if you're, no matter what sphere he's given you, no matter what he's asked you to steward, if you're just faithful with it, he'll say, well done, right. and good and faithful servant. That's all I want to hear. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we see how the word transformed the Western world Germany, to this day, is still one of the wealthiest nations because the foundation of the Protestant work ethic. And so we have to realize all of us are ministers and this Greek mentality, you know, of, uh, look, God wants to, us to be involved in every area, including government. This understanding of the separation of church and state. By the way, that's a misnomer because even Thomas Jefferson, when he was writing a letter to the Baptist pastor, he was basically saying, as a state, we will not interfere with you. As a government, we're, we're going to give you the freedom of religion. So it wasn't so much Christian. Do you know why the election's on a Tuesday? Because traditionally the pastor would share how to vote on Sunday because he was the parson, he was the most educated, and he would be able to, he was the most literate, just teach the people what the issues were. And so then you heard, but today, you know, there's this silence treatment that you, if you speak anything publicly about politics, and especially in the church service, so this separation, this dualism is a Greek mentality. It's not biblical. It's not Hebraic. God's involved in everything. Can I hear an amen? You're awfully quiet this <laughs> afternoon. I'm not sure are you awake or not. <laughs> but anyway, this is not what I want to talk about. This is actually just a, a little rabbit trail I went on, but <laughs> forgive me. But what I do want to talk about is revival. And I want to share with you three characteristics of a historic revival. Because we talk about revival. What does revival look like? You know, it's a revival. You know, my dad's Southern Baptist pastor, first Korean Southern Baptist in North America in 1958. And so he would advertise revival services, but there weren't really revival services. He just brought in the guest speaker from Korea and had three nights of meeting. There were great meetings, but th that's not revival, right? And, and so then we talk, we have other synonyms like awakening. What's the difference between revival and awakening? We have renewal services. What's the difference between renewal and revival? I mean, so there's a lot of metaphors that we use. And, and so we're wondering, you know, what is revival? Well, well, you know, I just want to give you from my perspective, historic revival. Okay. And, um, and because I got saved in revival and by the grace of God, I've hit every wave of revival since I gave my life to the Lord in 1973. What do I mean by that? Because in, in 73, with the Jesus People Movement, there was also the Charismatic Renewal. What is the Charismatic Renewal? The Charismatic Renewal began in 1958 with a man named Dennis Bennett. He was an Anglican priest in Los Angeles, Van Nuys. He gets baptized in the Holy Spirit and begins to speak in tongues. 
but he does not leave the Anglican denomination. So the Charismatics are people in mainline denomination that got filled with the Holy Spirit, experienced the supernatural manifestation of prophecy, healing, speaking in tongues, but they stayed within their denomination. So you have Charismatic Southern Baptists, Charismatic Lutherans, they're huge. Charismatic Methodists, Charismatic Catholics, and that's really huge. The Catholic Charismatic is, uh, encompasses around 20 million globally. Is, is really one of the biggest movements among the charismatic movement. And so, now what's really interesting, when that revival broke out, the Pentecostals who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit and Pentecostalism is, is, goes back to 1906 with Azusa Street. By the way, with an African-American name, William Seymour, which was unheard of to have a pastor to lead a multicultural church in 1906 in Los Angeles. He was actually blind in one eye, but he could see more than anyone else, and so he saw what the Spirit of God was saying. And so the revival broke out in 1906. Frank Bartiman, who was a historian, recorded the revival, and uh, his, his book's the bestseller called Azusa Street. I highly recommend you see it, get that book. He said, the color lines were washed in the blood of Jesus. What a great phrase. The color lines were washed in the blood of Jesus. In other words, the, the Asians were there, the Chinese were there because they were working on the railroad. The African Americans were there. The Hispanics, there. they're still there. We have three million Mexicans just in LA alone. If LA was a Mexican city, it would be the second largest Mexican city next to Mexico City. And so it was this incredible diverse group like here. How many know this looks like heaven? from every tongue, nation, and tribe. And our church is very diverse. If you come to our, um, when we, we were just two years old, we had 48 different nations represented. And it's much more diverse. We did a survey to see where all these people of color are coming from. And, but this is what heaven looks like. And, um, you know, I mean, look, if you're in Ames, Iowa, and you have a white church, we get it because that's a demographic. But in New York City, come on, in Los Angeles. <laughs> And, and so thank God that uh, God is bringing his people together in unity like yeah. never before. And, and so anyway, um, so Van Nuys, charismatic renewal, and I was impacted by that uh, because my spiritual father was a Catholic charismatic, Larry Tomzak, and he was one of the first Catholic charismatic evangelists. So he would bring me to all these charismatic meetings with priests, uh, bishops, cardinals who were baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was amazing. And then I went to Fuller Seminary in 1984, and I was part of what's called the Third Wave with John Wimber. And he was my mentor. He taught a very famous course, the largest seminary class at that time, Signs and Wonders and Church Growth. And it was Come Holy Spirit. And so to get hit with the Third Wave was absolutely amazing. So like every 10 years, like clockwork, I'm getting hit with another wave of revival. Then 94, Toronto outpouring. And is continuing. And, and so, as a result of that, I'm just saying, Lord, okay, what does historic revival look like, and what are the characteristics of revival? So I'm going to share three things, and if I have time, I'm going to talk about the three conditions of revival. And uh, around 2 o'clock, if you're still here, I might share on uh, <laughs> three lessons learned from revival. I'm not joking. I'm serious. I got, I got a whole weekend seminar for you, but... <laughs> I just flew in, and so they just said, okay, just come. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, three characteristics of revival. The first characteristic, revival always begins with the church. 
It doesn't happen with unbelievers. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people, how many of you are God's people? Who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. See, revival always begins with the church repenting, humbling themselves and repenting. Remember, I was sharing with you in Toronto, I did a lot of repenting. I remember the first night I was in Toronto and uh, doing floor time. You know what floor time is? Just resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't a courtesy fall, by the way. It was like the power of God was so strong. You could not stand many times. I mean, I walked into Toronto. I left crawling out, literally, on my knees. I could not walk. It was such a powerful time. And by the way, it's nothing new under the sun because you read uh, John Wesley's uh, prayer journal, and he talks about people falling under the power of the people laughing. He didn't understand that, but we see these manifestations throughout church history. Anyway... I'm on the floor, and I see my dad's face. And my dad passed away in 2010, but this is 1994. And I said, why are you showing me dad's face? And he began to speak to me that I was still holding on to bitterness and judgment towards my, my dad. Uh, and I, I don't want to go too deep into this because, um, you know, my dad... Uh, was a tremendous man of God, and uh, he worked so hard but I never saw him. He was an absentee dad. He was just trying to survive as, a, as an immigrant, right? And so he was pastoring on weekends. He was a dental technician Monday through Friday. And by the way, that's, that's normal because majority of um, pastors around the world have churches less than 100. And uh, like 80% of the churches in America are less than 100. And they have to be bivocational. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul was a tent maker. He chose to be a tent maker. I love that your pastor is an attorney, but he's also pastoring. I was just at Peter Roselli's church two years, two weeks ago, when I came for the Eric McTaxis interview, and, and here he is, you know, Vice President Morgan Stanley, and yet senior pastor. And so there's nothing wrong with being in the marketplace and also in vocational ministry. Again, all of us are ministers. So my dad uh, worked so hard, and I didn't see him. But I, as a little kid, I interpret that as, like, rejection. And by the way, you know, absenteeism uh, and divorce, the devastation that it does have, studies have shown the devastation of, that, of what divorce does to children, seriously. And uh, it, it's just, the, the, like, for example, and again, I don't want to just, it's like 70% of those who are incarcerated in prison had no dad, either by divorce or absenteeism. And, of course, you know, uh, with me, that caused me to want to be accepted by my friends, and I end up hanging around with the wrong friends. And during that time, the whole hippie drug culture came in the 60s, and I gave myself to hippiedom. Not the kingdom, but the hippiedom. I, I wanted to be a hippie, and, uh, and I ended up doing drugs at a very young age. By the time I was 15, I'm doing hard drugs, cocaine, heroin, LSD. By the time I'm 17, I'm a drug addict as a pastor's kid. And so, so I was the one that was rebellious, but yet I had resented my dad uh, for his lack of, we never had a day off, never a family day, we never went on vacation as a family. My friends would go on vacations, and seriously, the one vacation I remember was a church uh, trip to Mayo Beach, you know, Chesapeake Bay from Maryland. I grew up in the East Coast, and uh, we went just as a church Friday night, 
Saturday, came back Saturday, and uh, we went to the service on Sunday. That was vacation and was with a group of people, so it wasn't even a, a family time. And so I'm saying this, and, uh, and I start weeping because the Lord begins to really go deep. I mean, you know, we all have layers, you know, and I thought I had forgiven him. I thought I had been reconciled with my dad. Uh, but when the Holy Spirit comes, all of a sudden, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? And so I'm there weeping, and long story short, I knew I didn't want to do this by phone and ask for forgiveness or get reconciled on the phone, and there was no internet then. I mean, this is 94. I mean, it was just coming out, but, you know, there was no texting or anything like that. But my dad was coming to Los Angeles because my brother was getting, my younger brother was getting married. And I thought that would be the time. And it was an amazing conversation because I asked my dad for forgiveness. I said, God, show me. I still had some judgment towards you and bitterness. And he didn't understand that. He said, that was so many years ago, you know. I mean, here I am in my 40s and we're talking about. But how many know that we carry memories for years and unless God heals that it can become an issue and it was an issue for me so anyway I said dad I'm not doing this to condemn you I'm not trying to bring shame dishonor you I'm just telling you what the Lord did in my heart and I want to just let you know and ask again for your forgiveness but here's what happened my dad said you know every time we've talked about reconciliation you've always initiated and said will you forgive me and I've never asked for your forgiveness so he said will you forgive me for all the times I hurt you and then he said this, son, I love you. Now, first time in his whole entire life, I'm now in my 40s, I never heard the words, I love you. I'm part of his culture, a part of his the Korean, you know, and he's a different generation. And then he said this, I'm so proud you're a pastor just like me. I began to weep. Then I went into holy laughter, then weep, <laughs> holy laughter. I was schizophrenic in my emotions. And but see, this is what revival looks like. It repents, but it begins in the home. He's turning. See, Malachi chapter 4 says he's going to send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in verse 5, it says he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I strike the ground with a curse. Now, I, I'm prophesying to some of you that you need to get reconciled with your parents. Even if they passed away, you need to make sure in your heart that you're right. If you haven't honored them, you may ask yourself, why have things not gone well with me? Why am I just hitting, you know, one wall after another and I'm stuck? Well, here's what the word says in Ephesians 6, to obey your parents. It doesn't say when you're still young. I believe that you have to obey them unless it violates your conscience or something that's unscriptural, but the attitude is always one of honor. And then, of course, it says, honor your father and mother, that things will go well with you. How many of you want favor in life? How many of you want things to go well with you? Is it possible that you have short-circuited God's best for you because of the lack of honor? And so you want to honor your parents. You want, And then it says you'll live long. In other words, it's not just longevity, but it really means health that you will live a healthy, quality life. I don't want to live until I'm 100, being bedridden, diseased. I mean, who wants that quality of life? That, no, I want a life where the Bible says, beloved, I pray you prosper. Be in health, even as your soul prospers. You know, it's really interesting. Since 1999, I've not had the flu. Seriously, it's not an exaggeration. 
it's not a hyperbole. Ask anyone in my family, in my church. I have not, and I travel all the time. And, you know, my kids get the flu, my wife gets the flu, but I don't get the flu. And it's not like I have this incredible immune system. I used to get sick all the time. But here's what happened. When I started to run with Lou with the call, and I was the president of the call from 1999 to 2003, we did seven stadium events, including Washington, D.C., where we had a half a million young people. Still to this day, the largest youth prayer gathering in the history of America. We had a 100,000 Flushing Meadow. Were you guys there at the call in New York? Okay, all right. And so uh, then 2002 was just historic. And by the way, New York was the hardest place to mobilize. I remember having a pastor's meeting, and this, I'm not exaggerating, I got cussed out by a pastor. <laughs> oh, you were there, yeah, you were there. Sal was there, so he remembers, so he could testify. <laughs> You were not the pastor. No, Sal was not the pastor. He was very not. But he says, who do you think you are coming into New York? We don't need this, S-H-I-T, you know. And, and I'm just like, what's, what's going on? I said, but then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, the pastors called me and said, we need to gather together, humble ourselves, and pray. And over 100,000 showed up. How many know God will get our attention? Or he'll use whatever to, to mobilize. And, and so it was just a historic time in New York. But the, whole, but the whole point I'm trying to make is that in the call, I was able to share how I got reconciled with my dad. And it was, because part of it was generational reconciliation. We had different segments for the day. We always had a foot washing where we would wash our kids' feet. Um, and so my children would be up on the stage and I would wash their feet. And, and just a prophetic act, you know. Literally, the first one, we had actually water and bucket and towel. But after that, we just used uh, wipes, you know, <laughs> just to, to, you know, it was a little bit more practical. But, but, uh, <laughs> but the point being is, is that I felt this extraordinary favor come upon me, including health. When you walk in honor towards your parents, things will go well with you. You'll live long. So anyway, so um, just going back to repentance as the first characteristic and I, I really believe judgment begins in the house of the Lord first Peter 4 17 so again don't point the finger and say well you know if the Democratic Party repents or the Republican or President Trump repents no God says I want my people or call by my name to humble themselves as your church goes so goes our society it begins with you and me the second characteristic of a historic revival is that the harvest comes in Every historic revival, like I was mentioning about the Jesus People Movement, I don't know if you realize, by Time Magazine, which is not a Christian magazine, it's the most liberal magazine, in 1971, they came out with a front cover issue called the Jesus Revolution. And they were talking about the revival broke out in 67. This is 1971. I got saved in 73, so this is even before I got saved. They estimated 2 million teenagers have become followers of Jesus Christ since 1967. You look at all the pastors today who are my age, they got saved during the Jesus People Movement. And it's just amazing. Like Randy Clark was here just a few weeks ago, you know, and myself, of course. I got Michael Brown. He was a heroin addict. You know, a lot of the leaders who are here today got saved during that incredible revival. See, the Welsh Revival, 1904 with Evan Roberts, it broke out first six months 
100,000 people got saved in Wales alone, 100,000. And I, I think of like the Hebrides revival of 1948, Hebrides Islands uh, off of the coast of Scotland. But according to Duncan Campbell, who was a Scottish evangelist, Presbyterian evangelist, he said on one island, Lewis Island, everyone got saved. There was not one unbeliever. So what does that look like? Every single church building had four services every single day filled to capacity. Every church building met at 7.30, 9.30 at night, because they worked during the daytime, 11.30 and 1.30. And here's the point, you only could go to one service a week. So yours might be like this morning at 1.30 when I flew into New York. <laughs> and that's why we're saying, look, what would happen if all of New York got saved? Where would you meet? I mean, even you couldn't fill the stadiums. I mean, it would just be overflowing. You would have to have multiple services, even in stadiums. But in a historic revival, the harvest comes in. But how does the harvest come in? Is it just the glory just comes upon unbelievers? Well, there is, there is a spiritual awakening. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. So there's a spiritual battle, and that lives. But the Bible says, how can they believe without hearing the gospel in Romans chapter 10. And how could they hear without someone being sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The way it happens is just good old-fashioned evangelism where everyone is so bold, full of the Holy Spirit, they start sharing the gospel. Evan Roberts, with his high school group, I mean, they were teenagers, at Moriah Chapel, when the revival hit, he went to the pubs, the bars. They went into the bars and they witnessed to everyone in the bars until they got kicked out. And then when they got kicked out, they waited for the patrons to come out and they yeah. preached to them. They went to the jails to share with all the people who had been incarcerated for alcoholism. Most of it was alcohol related because, uh, you know, um, most of them were coal miners and most of them were drunk. And, and so we see that the jails emptied within six months. There was no one to arrest. The whole nation had gone saved, basically. And so the police were out of work. They didn't have anything to do, so they formed these uh, quartets and started to sing at churches because they <laughs> <laughs> this is what revival looks like. But when was the last time you shared your faith with anyone? You see? Only 2%, Bill Bright, the late Bill Bright, who was a dear friend, and he was one of our speakers at the first call, he shared that only 2% from his survey. Only 2% of the body of Christ have shared their faith. 2%. We have been given this magnificent mandate called the Great Commission. Notice I said Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. <laughs> and so some of us, we think, you know, well, it's an optional thing. No, it is, look, if we say we love Jesus, we're going to obey His will, His desires. And this one is top. Now, this is not to condemn you. I'm not, I'm just saying, I'm here to awaken, to say what does revival look like, because maybe you need to get revived, and maybe what you think is revival is not revival. Because if you're really revived, you're going to return to your first love. It's in Revelation 2, verse 4, the church in Ephesus, which is amazing, because Ephesus was the center of gravity of Christianity at one point. Acts 19, Paul goes there, he stays three years. And from that apostolic center, all of Asia hears the gospel. All of Asia, which is Turkey today, modern, uh, you know, day Turkey. And, uh, and, and so he says, repent, 
You've lost your first love. Do the things you did at first. Now, what did you do when you first got saved? Yeah, you would share your faith. I mean, I was hugging anything that moved. I just loved people, first of all. But then I would share my faith with every person I could, you know. I literally, because back in those days, everyone hitchhiked. I would just pick up hitchhikers. I had time. I would just pick up hitchhikers. And once they were trapped in my car, I would share the gospel. <laughs> A lot of them got saved. And then I would take them to my house and fill up the bathtub and baptize them. That's the Jesus people movement. Baptize them right away. But that's, that's how radical we were, all right? And so, yeah, but, but, you know, I get picked up by a Muslim Pakistani last night, Uber driver. And I know that I have a good hour, however long it takes, from uh, New, you know, Newark to, um, to the hotel was, I'm staying at. And, I, you know, it was just a wonderful conversation. I just had a chance to share about Esau, which is Jesus in Arabic. They believe in Esau, but they believe he's a prophet. And I said, but he's more than prophet. And I said, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so long story short, I said, can I just pray with you that God would reveal himself to you if, uh, that if Jesus is your king and Lord? He said, yes, very open. I mean, people, he loved what I was sharing with him. He's a devout Muslim, by the way. He prays five times a day to Mecca. And so we're talking about someone who picked me up who just doesn't pay lip service to Islam, but he was a devout Muslim, and yet he was wide open. And so when I flew into Monterey just even two weeks ago, um, because we were having this special solemn assembly, Bill Johnson was there, Ed Savoso, uh, Chris Valentin, Sean Boltz, and we're just having this California Apostles and Prophets gathering. And so I, I fly into uh, San Francisco because I was coming back from New York, uh, from Eric Metaxas thing, and I fly into New York, from New York to San Francisco, and I have an hour and a half to get to Monterey to the hotel where this event's taking place. And sure enough, I talked to an Ethiopian who had just been in this country, you know, around eight years, another immigrant, and, um, and he's Coptic Christian. So Ethiopians are 40% Muslim, 60%. Christian, but they're Coptic, the Eastern Orthodox. And so um, I just shared, well, I grew up in a Christian home too, but I didn't know Jesus. So I just basically enumerate what the gospel is. This is so simple. I said, first thing we need to emphasize is God loves us. He loves you. But the Bible says, number two, that we're all sinners. There's not one righteous, not one. The good news is that Jesus came, God became man, and he died for us since he took our place. And he rose again, proving that he's God. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we're all crazy. We're out of our mind. Why, why are we here? You know, But everything has changed because of that. 2.5 billion followers of Jesus because of the resurrection. But you still have to repent and believe. So I asked him this question. If you were to stand before Jesus, before heaven, and he asked you why I should let you in, what would you say? I thought he would say, well, I'm a good person. But you know what? He was so transparent. He says, I don't think I'll go get into heaven. I said, why? He says, I know I'm a sinner. Wow. You know, and, and so the honesty that came out, and I said, well, you know what? You could have your sins forgiven. And uh, it's by grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift. Would you like to receive this gift? He said, what do I have to do? Just pray this prayer. He gives his heart to Jesus Christ right there in the car as we're driving to Monterey. And uh, then the next hour I'm discipling him because I, this happened so quick early on in our conversation. <laughs> Look, people are hungry. 
But how are they going to believe without hearing? God has still chosen the foolishness of preaching through you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want to pray for an impartation at the end of this service. I want to pray that whatever the Lord's given to me, I don't know if we're going to have a fire tunnel or not. Can we do that? I'd like to lay hands on every one of you. I want to lay hands on every one of you that you would receive this apostolic evangelistic impartation, that you would turn New York City right side up. Amen? And that we would see a historic run. So the harvest comes in. The third characteristic, the third characteristic of historic revival, third characteristic of historic revival, so first the church gets revived, repents, returns to her first love. Secondly, the harvest starts coming in because believers are now going out and sharing their faith. And by the way, begin with your family and, and loved ones. Juliana gave the word, you know, that she had such a burden that we need to pray for our household, but that's so scriptural. It's Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your household will be saved. And so that's God's will. It never was individual. It was uh, Cornelius and his household. It was the Philippian jailer and his household. Lydia and her household. God has saved you to reach your family members. Seriously, he has saved you because he loves your whole family. And you're the key. And, uh, you know, I, I was the first one to get saved apart from my parents. And then my sister, who was at Smith College, I used to give her drugs. And I didn't sell her drugs, but I give So she was a pothead. And then my brother, who was 13, um, gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he's still part of my church in Los Angeles. He's a medical doctor. He's a surgeon for Kaiser. He got saved 13 and never backslid and just passionately followed the Lord. And so my whole family got saved. And so, anyway... So um, uh, the, the third characteristic is that society gets transformed. In yes. true historic revival, it's not just the church gets revived and souls get saved, but it impacts society. Right. Society gets changed. Like, for example, when we think of the, the Great Awakening of 1738 with Whitfield and John Wesley and Charles Wesley, we think of, like, as if England was in the Victorian age. It was anything but that. It was called the gin age for England. Gin. Why? Because gin got invented. And gin, a bottle of gin was cheaper than a pint of beer. In fact, every third, fourth house in England, they could make gin in their kitchen, so it was a gin house. They wanted extra revenue source. Overnight, the nation became a nation of alcoholics. And as a result of alcoholism, unemployment skyrocketed because they couldn't even function at work. They were just... You know, not they're getting fired, being drunk on the job. Crime rate rose. You couldn't walk through London without getting mugged. You know, what we read about Charles Dickens and Oliver Twist and, you know, pickpockets. I mean, it was worse. Uh, the, the people would fornicate in Hyde Park and oh, because the, all inhibition, they were so drunk, they just would. The, and this is gross, but I'm just going to just share historical facts. The parliament lowered the age of consent to 12 years old because they were pederasts. They were pe pedophiles. They wanted to have sex with little girls. So we see morality at the worst in England. By the way, the Victorian age was the 1800s because of the Great Awakening and people got saved and all of a sudden virtue got restored. But it was so decadent. And, and so in the midst of this darkness... Whitfield comes on the scene and begins to preach at the age of 22. By the way, you know, if you're young, 
every revivalist was young when you look at church history. I mean, Martin Luther would be the old kid on the block. He was 30 years old when he nailed the 95 Thesis. So don't limit the Holy One of Israel while you're young. Amen? Can I hear an amen? I mean, you know, so really, we, that's why I'm always trying to reach young people because they're the ones who are radical. They won't be willing to go to the nations and they'll be willing to be a fool for Jesus, whatever it takes to, uh, to advance God's kingdom. So, so Whitfield preaches and a young man gets saved named William Wilberforce. And uh, how many of you have heard of William Wilberforce? Okay, now this is so important. And of course, Eric McTax's best-selling book, Amazing Grace, about the life of William Wilberforce. I highly recommend you read that. His book on uh, Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer, two reformers. It's must-reading. And of course, they're both New York Times bestsellers. Okay, Bonhoeffer, if you have not read that. Uh, and, you know, as a result of that, he is friends with President Bush. He got invited to... Uh, you got invited by Vice President Pence recently to have dinner with him because of his book. It's such an amazing book. It just opened doors for him. And he was just uh, in Washington, D.C. speaking uh, at a conference that President Trump spoke at. And so he's really being raised up as a reformer. But, but Wilberforce was an uh, a Anglican who got saved under uh, Wesley's preaching. And uh, he became a Methodist. And uh, he was a member of parliament. Uh, he was a Cambridge graduate, so just top, brilliant young man. Very gifted. I mean, you know, when Eric McTaxis describes him, I didn't know he was only five feet three inches tall. He was a very small kid. But he had an incredible voice. In fact, he was an opera singer. And God used that voice in parliament. And he had this encounter with the Lord that he knew that he was to bring about the Reformation of Manners, two things, Reformation of Manners, and when we talk about Reformation of Manners, we're not talking about table manners, we're talking about Reformation of Morals, to restore chastity before marriage and fidelity afterwards, because there was so much fornication going on during that time. And then secondly, he was to end the slave trade and slavery. He had this encounter. He says it was an aha moment. So. For 47 years, he passes one legislation after another, submits it, I should say, which gets defeated every year. Why? Because slave trade was the number one source of income for Great Britain at that time. See, the love of money, I tell you, money, money is used, it's all moral. You could use it to advance God's kingdom or it could corrupt your heart. And so talents were created from the slave market. And without really realizing, we're talking about enslaving people made in the image and likeness of God. And so it was Wilberforce who wrote a book that became a bestseller, and here's what he did. He had a fine artist, she was an amazing artist, draw how the slaves are stacked on top of each other, chained together, with one bucket for them to eliminate their feces, and yet they couldn't even reach it. So they're eliminating on top of each other. And this book became a bestseller. And went viral, it, it was social media of their age, right? And when people started to read that, they said, all of a sudden, because now they're getting saved, the great awakening's happened, their conscience is awakened, they said, this is an abomination to God. These people are made in the image and likeness of God. We cannot elect a member of parliament that's not an abolitionist. But it took time. It took 47 years where they had the majority. That's why elections matter. I really mean that. I'm preaching to someone here. You know, you know, we have 60 million evangelicals in America. 
Only 20 million showed up at the midterm elections. 20 million didn't even show up. Now, there are 20 million that haven't even registered. So out of 60, 20 million have not registered. If you have not registered, I want to encourage you to register. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm telling you to register. Be responsible. I mean, I had to become a citizen when I was 13 years old. What a privilege it is for me to vote. But for you guys, if you are uh, American, and I, I want to encourage you to register. And, and then show up. Every election is absolutely crucial. So anyway, he passes legislation, submits it every year, and then finally by 1806 it passes. They had a majority in Parliament, and slave trade ended by legislation, and then slavery altogether by 1833. It absolutely transformed England. Without firing one shot, we had to go through a civil war. But the point I want to make is that transformation takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, think about it. The revival breaks out in 1738. It wasn't until slavery ended almost 100 years later, 1833. And by the way, Wilberforce was still alive. And then as soon as uh, Parliament declared uh, all the British colonial nations to totally abolish slavery, uh, he died uh, two days after that legislation passed. So God allowed him to live long enough to see the fruit of his labor. Just, uh, just an inside story from Eric McTaxis once again. Amazing, amazing grace. And so some of us, we have what's called transformation fatigue. You know, we want to see transformation and so why, you know, what's going on. But God's at work. The kingdom of God's advancing. I promise you he is advancing it may not be the way you would want it to be advance or you want it done yesterday. But for example, we're so close overturning one of the gross injustices of our time, which is legalized abortion. I mean, think about it. There may, every child, every person is made in the image and likeness of God. What about the human rights of that child in the womb? Seriously, we talk about the civil rights and human rights and all that. What about that child? 60 million have been aborted since 1973, one every 22nd in America. And so, yes, you know, I'm deeply concerned about poverty. I'm deeply concerned about the immigration issues. But let me just share this with you, just to give you perspective. There's 691 laws in the Old Testament. Most of them are ceremonial laws that went away when Jesus died on the cross for us. But 691 laws have been reduced to 10, called the Ten Commandments. And one of them, Thou shalt not murder is one of them. It's a big deal when we take an innocent life to God. And so we can't just be silent about that. We, I, I know there are other issues, but we have as believers, when we understand the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God, just like at that time the British began to understand these slaves are made in the image and likeness. They're human beings. And once that revolution it took hold, then all of a sudden, the nation changed. It begins with your mind. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But transformation of society happens as we do a mental shift. That's why Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 4, verse 17. The first thing out of his mouth is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we think about repentance, we think about turning away from our sin, and that's part of repentance. But the word metanoia, which is a Greek word, literally means to change the way you think. Everything's different now. Today we say do a paradigm shift. Jesus comes on the scene and says, everything is going to be different. You want to be great, you've got to be a servant. 
is an upside down kingdom. You want to find life, you got to lose your life. And so he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we have to shift the way we think and think like God and be biblical in the way we think. So it brings about transformation. When I think of society being transformed and it's happening right now, I think of John Schrock in Berlin, Ohio. You say, who's John Schrock? Well, he passed away a few years ago. But this one guy just absolutely transformed the town. And, um, and I've been there a number of times. And um, who's John Schrock? John was an Amish who sovereignly got baptized in the Holy Spirit and saved when he was like 13 years old. Uh, and, uh, you know, the two largest Amish community is in Berlin, Ohio, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay, so and some of you, how many have been to Lancaster? Just a tour. It's just great, great place to go. Of course, Charles Stock's from there, that area. So we go there at least once a year, you know. And so, but he's an Amish who gets born again. And he gets expelled from the Amish, including his family. They have this thing called shunning. So he gets shunned. Even though he had received his inheritance, they had a farm, a house for him, because they get married very young. And so he's 13, so they were just grooming him, grooming him to, to take over. Uh, he, he's without work. He's shunned. And so he has to get a job. And so he goes into the town Berlin, sees a sign at a gas station, help wanted. Now, how many know the Amish know nothing about mechanics? They don't believe in machinery. They don't, everything is just <laughs> natural. You know, you know, we're talking about, you know, horse and buggy people. They don't know anything, but, but he sees help wanted. He's hungry. He has to get a job. And so he goes up to uh, the owner, the mechanic, and he says, uh, I'd like to apply for that job. And the guy looks at him. He's, he knows he's Amish. He's dressed Amish in an overall Amish hat, the whole nine yards. <laughs> And he says, what do you know about cars? And he says, nothing. I don't know anything about it. He says, that's what I thought. He said, I'm looking for a mechanic. And he says, listen, I'm a fast learner. And, um, and then finally, John says this. He says, just hire me for two weeks without pay. And let me just work. And if you don't like my work, then you don't have to hire me. And so this guy's thinking, this guy's a sucker. I'm going to have my garage clean for, for nothing. And so he said, OK, you're on. I'll hire you for two weeks without pay. And so John comes in. He's the first one there before this shop opens up, the last one to leave. He cleans the whole place up, but he's a fast learner. And after only two weeks, a mechanic says, you know what, you have blown me away. And so I'm going to hire you. By the way, John was spending between three to five hours at night just reading the Bible. He was so hungry for the Word of God. He's just being changed by the Word of God after he got baptized in the Holy Spirit and sovereignly saved. So the guy hires him. He adopts him as his spiritual son, and then a few years, we're only talking about a few years later, he says, you know what, I'm going to sell this uh, shop, but instead of selling it, I'm going to give it to you if, you know, we'll work out a financial arrangement so I just get ongoing revenue from this shop, but you're the owner. He becomes the owner of this shop. With the money, he buys the motel right across the street. And then he fixes it up to a five-star hotel in Berlin. I've stayed in that hotel it's amazing. Every, every uh, uh, bedroom is like a suite, is like embassy suite, but the tub is a jacuzzi tub. Flat screen television, I mean, he just, excellence everywhere. Then he buys a restaurant right next door and becomes the top restaurant in Berlin. And then all of a sudden he realizes that all these people are, want to come to Berlin to see how the Amish uh, live, and so he decides to do a tour business. 
and buys all these buses. And, um, and so he makes arrangement with the farmers and listen, you know, how would you like to make some extra money? And of course, they all want to make money because they're very industrious, you know, the Amish people. And so he says, listen, I'd like to bring them uh, to your barn, if you set up a barn, and serve them good old-fashioned German Amish food. And they said, we're on, you know, we'll bake the pie and all that. But he charges the people who are touring from Miami and Florida, you know, coming up to Berlin, you know, he charges them a hefty rate. He becomes a multi-multi-millionaire overnight. Then he plants a church and becomes the largest charismatic church in Berlin. And, uh, and so here's what happened. People started to hear about him. So Berlin is like an hour away from Cleveland. So these five guys who are young people who want to, they're reading books like Think and Grow Rich. They want to get rich. They want to be, and they said, here's a guy who is a millionaire. So let's see if he will have breakfast with us. And so they made an arrangement to have breakfast together. And so, uh, so they asked him, is it possible we're willing to drive here once a week if you will mentor us. And John's praying, just doing listening prayer as they're having breakfast, and the Lord begins to speak to him and say, yeah, meet with them, share the gospel. They're not saved. None of them are saved. So he says, yeah, I'll be willing to do that. And so they start driving up from Cleveland, and here's what happens. All five of them become born again. All five of them become multi-millionaires. They all relocate to Berlin, and they begin to buy businesses, and you see this transformation of a town because of the way that he mentored and raised. He is a reformer on the business mountain. You can transform. By the way, how many know it takes money to transform society? <laughs> and the Bible prophesies that. You know, I mentioned about, you know, wherever um, uh, in every revival there's darkness, like the Gen Age. It's Isaiah 60. Verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Yeah. Darkness covers the earth, grows darkness of people, but the Lord will rise upon you. And then the Bible says, Nations will come to your light, yeah. and kings to the brightness of your dawning. But here's the amazing thing. In verse 5, it says, The wealth of the nations will come to you. In the midst of revival, God brings the wealth. Why? Because he knows it takes money to finance the advancement of the kingdom. Whether it's to plant churches, take care of orphans, feed the poor, build schools, education, publish Bibles, you name it. It just takes money to advance his kingdom. God has chosen that. But here's what he says is that if you will seek first my kingdom, make Jesus king of your life, do what's right, he says, I'm going to give you all that you need to advance. It is prosperity with a purpose. Say that with me, prosperity with a purpose. So in our stream, we don't just teach you know, name it and claim it and, you know, prosperity for the sake of prosperity is always prosperity. Yes, God wants to bless you. But it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. I want to bless you so all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's about reaching people. It's about reaching families. And so what I want to do is I want to really uh, close a time of impartation, but I want all of us to really say, Lord, begin reviving my life begin revival in my heart. I want to return to my first love. If there's anything in my life that's displeasing to you, I want you to show it to me. And um, I'd be like David, search me, O God, know my heart, and try me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any evil way within me, and lead me in your everlasting way. And as we pray that prayer, I believe it doesn't take much. You know, John Wesley said, get on fire 
and people will come and see you burn. <laughs> uh, I like that's that's revival. You get on fire for the Lord, it's just that fire is going to spread. People are going to catch it. The other famous quote from John Wesley is that he said this, give me a hundred men, today he would say a hundred men and women, who love God and hate sin, and I'll usher in the kingdom in one generation. If God could use 120 in the upper room, why not Life Center here in New York? Love God, hate sin, I'll usher in the kingdom in one generation. We can see transformation. With God, all things are possible. And when we see, like, Lewis Island, everyone getting saved in 1948, why not New York? We saw the Ful uh, Fulton uh, uh, revival, the 1858 uh, prayer revival right here in New York City. Two million got saved because of the revival that broke out. Of course, throughout the United States, two million, not just in New York. But God could do it again. So would you just stand with me? God is so good, amen. He loves us with an everlasting love. Isn't it amazing? I love where it says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He gives us such a revelation of his goodness. And, and he, but he does say, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It begins with his people. And so, Father, I just pray right now that we would humble ourselves before your mighty hand. You give grace to the humble. You oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. We just want to humble ourselves acknowledge our sin. I wonder if you would pray this prayer out loud and repeat after me. I, it will be a generic prayer, but you know what the issues are in your own heart. You know, maybe you're sleeping around and you know that has to end. Maybe there's, you know, lying and cheating going on and living a double life. Whatever the issue is, God knows. He knows everything. But what I want to do is I want to ask you to pray this prayer and make this your prayer where we're going to consecrate ourselves. We're going to give our hearts 100% to Jesus as Lord. So would you repeat after me and make this your prayer? Just say, Heavenly Father, please forgive me for all my selfishness, my rebellion towards you, rebellion towards authority. I repent I surrender myself, all that I am, all that I have, to you. I confess, Jesus is my Lord. He is my King. He is my God. And by your grace, I will follow you. I will obey you, especially the Great Commission. In Jesus' mighty name. Now put your hand on your chest because, again, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, you need the grace of God. And just pray this. Just say, Heavenly Father, fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. Give me your power. Now let the power of God just rest upon you. Just get filled up. Just do it in faith. Just receive. What I like to do is I like to just breathe in because he's everywhere. And I want him to come. Just breathe in. Just more, more, Lord, more of your power. Increase it. <laughs>